It's good to be with you this evening. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Maryville, where I have been called to serve as the teaching elder since earlier this year. I was very thankful to be invited to speak to you tonight, and our sermon text is uh, taken from Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We'll be reading the first 11 verses of chapter 3. As you turn there, let us remind ourselves that we believe this is the inerrant word of the one and only true and living God. It is the only infallible rule for our faith and its practice. So hear now the word of our God from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray as we approach his word this evening. Almighty God, you have promised that your word will never return void. It will always accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Though I am an unworthy messenger and a sinful man, I pray that you would sanctify my words this morning so that your word may be proclaimed in your house this evening, and that you would sanctify us in the truth of your word. In the name of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen. I was raised just down the road from here, actually, in a very conservative Baptist church. I know that is shocking that someone from East Tennessee was raised Baptist. My parents were always making every effort to ensure that we were involved in church. 
whether it was youth outings or summer camps or missions trips, if it was happening, we were there. Our church was passionate about evangelism, and I still to this day think that that was a good thing. And we heard many exhortations to share our faith with those around us, to get out of our comfort zone and tell people about Jesus. And I'll never forget one particular evening when a very well-meaning person was addressing the young people of the church and said to us, guys, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be embarrassed when I get to heaven. I've thought about that statement many times over the years. Again, it came from what I think was a good motivation. This person wanted people to know Jesus. They wanted us to be outspoken about our faith. But the statement, I don't want to be embarrassed when I get to heaven, has always seemed very problematic to me, even at the time. Why on earth would we be thinking about what we did when we get to heaven? Why would we be comparing ourselves to others? And if it's possible to be embarrassed when you get to heaven, is it possible to look at other people and think, my goodness, they must be horribly embarrassed? They didn't do anything to get themselves here. All they have is Christ's righteousness. I'm sure they wish they had done more. But this is what we do. As sinful people, we always seek to compare our good works to those of others. We always want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Our sinful nature will always want to exalt itself to glory in itself, rather than face the reality that all we have is what we have been given. We don't want to face the fact that even the good works that we do are God's gift to us. This is something that we have to guard against. It's so easy to rest in the confidence of our work on Christ's behalf rather than his work on our behalf. And yet there is only one way to gain that which is of infinite worth. The only way is to know Christ and to glory in him and his work for us. To count everything that we would use to justify ourselves as trash, as useless, and rest solely on Christ and Christ alone. And that is the subject of our text this evening. Now Paul opens this section of the letter by reiterating things that he has already told the Philippians in the past. In fact, as I'm preaching through Philippians at Trinity, I've noticed that he is covering themes that he's told other churches in the past too. A big part of Philippians 1 and 2 is addressing divisions and factions in the church. Paul had already addressed that in the church in Corinth. In our text this evening, he talks about the Judaizing heresy, which he had already written an entire letter to Galatia about that. None of this is new material, but the Philippians need to hear it. How often do we come to church and hear the word of God And what we hear is something that we've heard a thousand times. Have you ever wondered why that is? Have you ever wondered perhaps if that 
might uh, annoy Dr. Wilburn, perhaps. If you might imagine him writing his sermon in his study and thinking, I've told them this before. Why do they not get it? Why do I need to say this again and again and again? But remember, Christians, our sinful heart will forget the truth of God's word. We are so stubborn in our sinful nature that we need to be reminded week after week after week of the truth of God's word. So let me encourage you this evening, brothers and sisters, to make diligent use of the means of grace. Listen to God's word with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Lay it up in your hearts so that you might practice it in your lives. Come to the Lord's table and receive by faith Christ's body and blood for you. Remember and meditate on the promises given to you in your baptism. Offer up your desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of your sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. These means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer are for your good. And they are safe, as our text says. They will cause you to rejoice in the great salvation that we have in Christ. And making diligent use of these means of grace will protect you from those who would seek to take away the gifts of God given to you in the gospel. In verse 2 of our text, Paul repeats three times, look out. It reminds me of Peter's counsel in 1 Peter 2, how he describes Christians as living in a war zone behind enemy lines, under constant threat from the enemy who would seek to rob us of our faith. It also reminds me of 2 Peter In chapter 2, when he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, in our text this evening, Paul is concerned that the Philippians not be taken in by those who would claim to have the truth and yet rob them of the gospel of grace. He describes these false teachers in three ways. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. Now, as I said before, these are the same false teachers. It's the same false teaching that Paul had addressed all the way back in Galatians. This is the Judaizing heresy. And it's interesting to note that Galatians was one of the first epistles that Paul wrote. Philippians was written towards the end of his life, and yet the same false teachers were still threatening the peace and purity of Christ's church. Paul calls these false teachers dogs. Now, in modern Western culture, to call someone a dog is an insult. You're saying that that person is perhaps dishonest or selfish, someone that will do whatever they have to to get ahead. But Paul is using this name in a different way. In order to understand it, think back to Christ's words to the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. 
when he said, It is not right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. So, in that instance, the children would be the people of Israel, God's covenant people, and the dogs would be the outsiders, the Gentiles. So the word dog is not so much an insult as it is a term that differentiates between those inside God's covenant community and those outside God's covenant community. And yet, think about how the Judaizers would have thought of themselves. They were the Israelites. In fact, their circumcision was proof that they were really part of the people of God. Jesus wasn't enough for them to be in the people of God. They needed their works. And those who didn't hold to circumcision proved that they were not part of the people of God by that very fact. And yet Paul flips the script. Those who put confidence in the works of the flesh are the true dogs. While those who trust in Christ and receive his righteousness by faith alone are the true children. Paul also calls these false teachers evildoers. Literally, the Greek is people who do bad things. In calling them by this title, he's again flipping their contention on its head. You see, they made the claim that Christ was not enough without this one good work. And yet Paul states that that is exactly what makes them evil doers. In requiring circumcision, they were not doing good, they were doing evil. Finally, he calls them mutilators. Circumcision, believe it or not, was not restricted in its practice to the Jewish people. Other pagan peoples would practice circumcision, but the difference was without the God of Israel, without his covenant promises, it was not a covenant sign. It was not simply the act of circumcision, but it was faith in the God who had said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. Without that, it was nothing more than mutilation. And Paul is stating here that the insistence of the Judaizers on circumcision makes it nothing more than mutilation. So to conclude, these false teachers have placed themselves outside the people of God. They are practicing evil by their insistence on circumcision and have made it not a covenant sign, but nothing more than mutilation, no different than what the pagans practice. These false teachers are holding up a counterfeit. Circumcision, as we read in our Old Testament reading this evening, was meant to distinguish the people of God from people outside of God's covenant. But that covenant sign has passed away with the coming of Christ. When Christ died and rose again, he commanded his followers to preach the gospel to all nations, and he gave them a new covenant sign, baptism. Those in Christ are now the true circumcision. As Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says, In him that is in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
You see, the shadow has passed. Now we have the substance. Now we have Christ. And this is what makes us what Paul calls the true circumcision. And Paul lists three differences here between the mutilation on the one hand and the true circumcision on the other. The true circumcision has the Spirit of God. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, the very worship of the people of God changed. No more did God's people have to come to the temple in Jerusalem, offer sacrifices, and observe the rituals of the Mosaic Law. Now God's people have God's Spirit. Circumcision was always a picture of the work of God's Spirit to join His people to Himself. And that's why converts had to be circumcised when they entered God's people. And children born into his people also had to be circumcised. But that sign pointed forward. It had a fulfillment, and that fulfillment was the outpouring of God's Spirit. And we have that fulfillment. So we don't need to go back to the shadow. Second, the true circumcision glories in Jesus Christ. The mutilation gloried in their own works, in their own law-keeping. The mutilation said that Christ was not enough to save you if you didn't keep the law. The mutilation took away from the work of Christ on behalf of his people. But the true circumcision says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, Helpless, look to thee for grace. You see, the true circumcision knows that Christ must save and Christ alone. And so the true circumcision puts no confidence in the flesh. Sure, it's tempting to look at our lives and put our confidence there, but we know that all of our good works are stained by sin. We know that we do things from selfish ambition or to be seen by others. We know that even if we do exactly what Christ called us to do, that's no reason to boast. We're still just his unworthy servants. We know that by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. We cannot put our confidence in our flesh. We must look to Christ and Christ alone. But now Paul anticipates an objection. The objection goes something like this. Well, Paul, of course, if you're such a sinner that you could never hope to keep the law, well, then of course you'll look to someone else to give you his righteousness. Or perhaps they might say, well, of course you're going to tell Gentiles that they don't need circumcision. That's just a way of lowering the bar to let them in. But if you were true Israelites like us, you would know better, Paul. Well, Paul, in response, states that if he played by the Judaizers' rules, he would be a better lawkeeper than they were. It reminds me of Martin Luther's account of his time as a Roman Catholic monk. Luther stated that his problem as a monk wasn't that he was a bad monk. His problem was that he was a great monk. He kept every rule that they had and even went above and beyond. But he couldn't escape the problem of his own sin before a holy God. 
Now, Paul, for his part, was better than Luther. Paul was circumcised at eight days old in full keeping with what God's law had said. He was born into the people of Israel, not from some obscure, disreputable tribe, but from Benjamin. His family had not adopted the practices of the Greco-Roman culture. Even though he was born in modern-day Turkey, he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, it's a way of saying that you didn't get more Hebrew than Paul. How did Paul view the law? He was a Pharisee, one of the strictest and most biblically faithful sects of Judaism in that day. How seriously did he take his Jewish faith? He was willing to persecute the church, to breathe out threats and murder, to try to extinguish the church of Christ. Could anyone bring any charge against Paul that he had not kept to the strictest requirements of the Mosaic law as they had been handed down to him? No. And Paul was a well-known figure in his day. It would have been possible to go back and check. Paul had a spotless record when it came to being a good Jew. No one could boast in the flesh more than Paul. If he were a Presbyterian, he might have said, baptized as an infant in an original PCA church, the son of a minister brought up to know the Westminster Catechism backwards and forwards, as to worship, truly reformed, as to zeal, an RUF intern, as to my conduct in life, never eating out on the Sabbath or even watching TV. No one could ever say that I didn't do exactly what I had been taught. Now again, all of those things are good. It's good to take worship seriously. And I've been blessed by our worship here this evening. It's good to want to keep your conduct pure so that men might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But Christians, that will not save you. Even though Paul had better credentials than any of the false teachers against whom he spoke, even though no one could ever have more confidence in the flesh than Paul had, Paul knows that it is nothing without Christ. Look down at your Bibles at verse 7 with me. Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. In verse 7, Paul is recounting his conversion experience. That moment on the Damascus road when he realized the futility of all his vigorous law-keeping. And indeed, this is not simply a past reality. Verse 8 makes it clear that far from regretting that decision, he is more uh, firmly committed as he writes this letter than on that day that Christ knocked him off his horse. These works of the law weren't gain. 
They weren't points of favor with God. They were liabilities. Paul had come to realize that he had to give up everything that he would use to justify himself. He had to give up his standing in first century Judaism. He had to give up his reputation as the best lawkeeper around. And he did. Imagine that in Acts 7, Paul is leading the charge to put Stephen to death. In Acts 8, Paul leads a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 9, Paul is given authority by the Jewish leaders to go and arrest Christians in Syria and bring them back to Jerusalem. And in Acts 21, all that had to happen was for someone to see Paul in the temple and a riot broke out because they assumed he had defiled the temple. Paul lost everything. But he lost it all so that he might gain something far better. Those works of the law, far from justifying him before God, only served to magnify his guilt. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 20 that through the law simply comes knowledge of sin. He says in Galatians 3.19 that seeking to be justified by the law simply makes our transgressions clearer. Paul had to forsake everything that he had in his old life in Judaism in order to gain Christ. And as verse 9 says, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So Christians, where does your confidence lie this evening? Do you find your confidence in your church attendance? What about how much money you contribute or how much time you spend making sure that the ministry of the church keeps going? Now these are all certainly good things, things that I would encourage, but these cannot be the source of our confidence. That must come from Christ. Our good works will not justify us. They will not make us be accounted as righteous in the sight of God. The only righteousness that we can have before God is the one that Christ gives us. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Christians, this justification that we have in Christ, this righteousness freely given to us by faith alone in the gospel has a purpose. In verse 10, Paul states, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This, brothers and sisters, is a picture of sanctification. Remember, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto Righteousness? It's a process of dying, of suffering, of laying down our lives for the sake of Christ. Christians, you have been called to share in Christ's suffering. And sure, for some, this will mean literally suffering at the hands of those who oppose the gospel, those who would throw us in prison and take our lives. 
Our brothers and sisters in places like China and North Korea can certainly attest to that. But you have been called to suffer here in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. You have been called to suffer as you wage war against your sinful nature, as you fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil in seeking to do that which is pleasing to God. Now you might be thinking to yourself, didn't you just say that our good works don't justify us in the sight of God? But now you're saying that we're called to suffer as we seek to do good works in God's sight. The answer is yes. Yes to both. Apart from Christ, we have no righteousness. We are dead in our sins and unable to do anything that is pleasing to God apart from Christ giving us His righteousness. The Father adopting us into His family. The Spirit giving us new life. And yet, as we follow Christ, we are called to represent Christ in this world. We are called to walk as He walked. We are called to live in a way that His Word tells us is pleasing. And the way that we do that is by dying, by laying down our lives, our desires, and our wills in His service. And yet, sanctification is also a process of resurrection. I was reading this week in the larger catechism, and I was very pleased that I came up with that from the shorter catechism, and it's, it's laid out beautifully in the larger catechism if you want to take the time to read it. It's not just dying more and more to sin. It's living more and more to righteousness. By God's power and work in our lives, we are given new life. We are no longer spiritually dead. We are made alive in Christ. As Paul said in Romans 8, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And this is our calling, brothers and sisters. We are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. We are called to lay down our lives in his service. And we can do this because we have the power of his resurrection. This is the life of the Christian, dying to sin and rising to live in righteousness by the power of God's Spirit. And this is the category for those good works we talked about earlier. Our evangelism, our giving, our serving, these are all done in this knowledge of Christ, in this sharing in his sufferings and receiving of the power of his resurrection. This is how we are able to do these things for the glory of God. It is through the work of the Spirit in us. And this knowledge of Christ, this power of his resurrection that we have, not only enables us to live a life that is pleasing in his sight, but it also gives us the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Think about Paul's situation as he wrote this letter. He was in prison in Rome. He didn't know if he would ever be released. His life quite possibly was over. 
as far as being able to go where he wanted, being able to do what he wanted, he was in the process of literally laying down his life for the gospel. And some might have looked at Paul's life and thought, what a waste. Think about it. You had this young man who was a very prominent figure in the circles in which he ran. He was advancing and gaining prominence far above many who were his own age. He was a rising star and he threw it all away. After coming to Christ, Paul lived his life on the run, being beaten and stoned, being shipwrecked and imprisoned. Now, as he writes to the Philippians, he was awaiting trial. And who is to say how the emperor would actually judge the case? I mean, justice was not really the first priority for Nero. Paul had lost everything. And soon he would lose his very life. And it was all for this message of the cross that had gotten him in trouble in the first place. But Paul sees things differently. Paul sees great gain. Yes, Paul had lost all those worldly advantages, but they were nothing. They were garbage. They were dung, as the King James puts it. Sure, he would eventually be put to death for the gospel, but this gospel was the only means by which he might gain a treasure greater than this world could ever give him. Through the loss of all things, Paul had gained Christ, and Christ gives the resurrection of the dead. You remember the old movie, It's a Wonderful Life? It took me a while to get my wife to actually watch that movie with me, but it's something that I have to watch every year. There's a a scene when the Great Depression hits, and everybody makes the run on the bank. Of course, the bank didn't have any more money than anybody else, and so people are literally staring at losing their entire life savings. But old man Potter has a solution. He tells George Bailey, I may lose a fortune in all this, but I'll give your people 50 cents on the dollar. And so George is pleading with the people not to take Potter's offer, and he shouts out, don't you see? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. It was the exact opposite of how it had seemed. Potter wasn't losing a fortune. He was gaining control of everything. Well, in our text this evening, Paul is screaming at the Philippians, Don't you see? I'm not losing. I'm winning. Yes, I lost everything. But I have Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I lost all my ground of boasting, but that wasn't worth anything. Yes, I've suffered for Christ in this life and I will suffer more, but in the end I get Christ. And the power that raised him will raise me. So Christians, I urge you this evening to count all things, all your works of the flesh, every ground that you might have for boasting as rubbish, as trash, as worthless, and seek rather the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Trust in Him for your righteousness. Because that is the only righteousness that will avail before God. Lay down your lives and die to your sins so that you might live in His righteousness.
Trust in the hope of the resurrection of the dead, saying in all circumstances, as you suffer for him in this life, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That as you have said, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you that through Christ we may know you that by your spirit we are united with him so that we have fellowship with our triune God. Help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of this calling in all things praising you for your wondrous grace that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.